Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. We're, we're teaming up this morning. Karen is typically behind the scenes somewhere in just about anything that I have to share. All that good stuff actually comes from her. Not all of it. And, but in the course of talking through God's word together, we, we thought, let's, let's talk it through together with you guys this morning. And, and so as we do, yeah, I'm just so thankful for the many ways that God does open his word to us and make sense. And we're going to be actually building on the things that Miguel shared last Sunday. Uh, from First John. And so we're going to end up in First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 in particular, but we're glad to get to share it together. So uh, what do you think of my outfit? <laughs> it's a little hard to know how to answer. Um, mostly great. Um, I mean, you look terrific, dear, but there's just this one thing that um, doesn't quite go with the rest. Yeah. Um, there's this toilet tape. I was just saying that there's we're just not, this... We're not going to talk about that. It's right there. Just, just... Um... Your shoes are great. Mm-hmm. The blouse is a lovely color. But there's also this toilet. I just thought you should know about that. I know. But we're pretending it's not there. Honey, I could help you with that. You can ignore it. That's what would help me. <laughs> it's not going away. When we pretend it's not there. Just, just. Look, I'm not sure that we can really have a conversation if this is what it's going to be like. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, if you were here last week, you remember Miguel was unpacking First John chapter 2, the first couple of verses. And if you weren't here last week, you can listen to it on the podcast. He just did a great job of opening up for us how if anyone is stuck in a sin, we have Jesus who speaks for us because he died for us and he paid the price and he can become becomes our righteousness. Um, and really, we're going to go back to the verses right ahead of that with, I'm trying to get my words around a desire that I have for all of us as a family that that God would somehow help us just shatter the stronghold of shame and secrets. And that's probably the best way for me to express what's on my heart, is that, God, would you just help us to find freedom from the ways that we become slaves to our secrets and get stuck in shame? Because Jesus really wants to bring us into a freedom there. And, And it starts with knowing who he is and how this gospel works in meaningful ways in our lives. So let's let's take a look at the verses that come right ahead of what Miguel was sharing from us in chapter 2. And as often happens to me, you know, I find there's a couple verses I particularly think will help us 
But then I think in order to understand those, we need to broaden the lens from zoom to wide angle a little bit. So let's start in chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 John, uh, where it says this. John starts out his letter and he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. It's actually a little hard to know whose joy he's talking about. There's some manuscripts in the Greek where it says your joy, others where it says our joy. And, and regardless of which one it says, they're wrapped up together anyway. So understanding this and getting hold of it and living in it is critical to joy in our lives and in our relationship. And so he continues, and he says in verse 5, this is the message that we heard from him. Heard from who? Yeah, he's saying, from Jesus. we heard this directly from Jesus, and now we're proclaiming it to you. And here's what it is. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, well, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. And here we get to where Miguel started last week. My dear children, I write this to you so that you would not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what are some of the things that stand out in this passage? A dozen verses here, there's a lot there. And it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. So before we kind of dig into some of the details of it, Karen and I wanted to highlight this. That John's focus, his real emphasis here, is that relationship with God is the real treasure. Do you see how concerned he is for the authenticity of our relationship with God, what he calls fellowship? In the Greek, the word he uses there is koinonia. And it's a rich word that talks about partnership and sharing life together. It's not just sharing potato salad at a church potluck. It is a deep sharing of life and purpose and meaning and intimacy together. And, and for me, I, I see that emphasis, and it challenges something that comes naturally to me, which is finding my significance in my accomplishments. Because John's not focused on that. He's not focused on being used by God. He's, being, he's focused on having authentic, rich fellowship with God. 
And that's a challenging dynamic, I think particularly for some of us men who feel like our worth is because of what we do. And I talk with guys in the course of their relationship with God and trying to follow Jesus, and they'll say, I want God to use me. I so want God to use me. I so want God to use me. And I think about years of my life, but that was like my primary thing. And I was leaving out so much of what John here sees as central, which is fellowship with God himself. John knows what he's talking about. You know, this is this is one of those guys that was fishing and Jesus came along and said, follow me. You know, and Jesus' invitation wasn't to like do this for me. It was come on, walk with me, be with my group, and we're we're gonna go together and you're gonna see what I'm like and you're gonna become what I'm like and you're gonna do stuff with me. Yeah. And, and so this is the treasure, the goal. The goal for you and me, it's not getting God to use us. It's walking in fellowship with God. It's so important because Jesus didn't die on the cross to make us his servants. He said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And and there's a tempting appeal to the idea of God using us. But the goal is to walk with him, to be in fellowship with him, that his life would saturate our life and our life would be richly embedded in his. And I think if you and I, if we find ourselves more excited about the idea of serving God than knowing God and just fellowshipping with God, we need to pause and ask, why is that? Why do I just want God to use me, but I'm not so excited about actually getting to know him better and spending time with him. Maybe it's because God is light and in him there is no darkness. Maybe that's one reason we have some darkness that we're still trying to keep. And if we get real close to that light, that darkness is going to be gone and we won't have it anymore. Have I ever mentioned that being married to you is uncomfortable sometimes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, because if if knowing God isn't more appealing than being used by God, right? Um, it, it it challenges what am I really hoping for? I, I mean, because the whole goal of being used by God somehow has got to involve helping other people get to know Him, right? And when we think about what's God's mission and purpose in the world. It's going to come back to making himself known and reconciling people into relationship with himself as he brings all creation back to its original intention in fellowship with himself. And so what do I want God to use me for if not to help people get to know him? But if I'm not actually more excited about knowing him myself, then what am I really living and doing? There's a ends up being a gap there. And for John here... You're right. He knows about that. He was saying, this is what we've seen with our eyes, what we've touched, what we handled. This is the greatest thing. When uh, when my dad was visiting a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, whenever that was, 
and he, he was just chatting with the girls and he does his grandpa thing, which is he asks them a question to stimulate discussion. And the way to respond to that when grandpa does that is you brainstorm a little bit and then you let him tell you what's on his mind. And, uh, so he said, so, so why would people believe in Jesus? And, uh, and he wasn't really asking, like, what's the evidence that compels people to think that this story is true? He was saying, like, why would you want to? And, uh, and so Sarah dutifully threw up an answer uh, to go to heaven. And he said, okay, uh, go on. And, um, and Elizabeth pointed out that being in heaven was probably better than being in hell. And, and then, uh, and then my mom said, well, and the Lord is in heaven and we'll be with Jesus when we're in heaven. And, and my dad said, well, why would you want to be with him then if you don't want to be with him now? <laughs> and that was the point. That was the point. Yeah. I mean, he went on, but that mm-hmm. was the point. And in, in so many ways, that that's an element of what John's getting at here now, is how do we have an authentic relationship with the Father and with one another? And, and Karen is, is in many ways more of a visual thinker, and I'm fairly verbal. And so do you want to just diagram out how you read these verses to yourself? This is the message that we heard that we passed on to you that this is supposed to be the Lord, okay? Now, I'm a very visual thinker. My visions are a little better than the whiteboard cartoons, uh, but it still helps me to draw these out if you're not one of these audio thinkers. If you're a real hands-on person, you can go home and do this with a big flashlight and some G.I. Joes, but afterwards... So this is, this is me, or us, or you. And the message that we heard is, is that God is light, and there is no darkness in him. So there's, there's the light coming out. But why do we pass it along? It's because so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So this is really what the Lord is after, is that fellowship. And we want this fellowship here, like that. But if we claim that we haven't sinned, then... uh we are now living a lie. Go ahead. Can you want to read that verse here? Walk in darkness. So now this is our lie umbrella, right? And this is our darkness here. Boy, this is, this is not nearly as beautiful as it is in my head. Okay. Can you even read the lie, lie there? Okay, so um, I need a little help here so that I don't get it all out of order. Okay, so 
we claim to have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, we lie, and do not walk in the truth. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Here. Colors. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, yeah, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But you see, it's the lie, if we want to personify it for a minute, it's trying to break all of this. The lie will break this. Because when we, when we say we haven't sinned, right, we make him out to be a liar. And we make, and we lie to other people. And we cut ourselves off from what God has to say to us, right? Right? It says his truth has no place in our lives. And why did John go through all of that? Because he wants us to be close to our brothers and sisters, to the Lord. Do you see the connectedness in what John is putting together? In each of these three things, he's talking about different ways that lies shut us off from fellowship with God and with one another. And and there's such, in many ways, such well-intentioned lies that seem aimed to protect and preserve that fellowship by pretending, but in fact, they're toxic to authentic relationship with God and with each other. You will keep the secrets of this society. The penalty for breaking it is death. (laughs) (laughs) Look at that, right? Michael Corleone, right? (laughs) Keep the secrets. Well, 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 that's not what we want. No, it's not. It's the wrong kind of fellowship, guys. <laughs> the wrong kind. Right? You know, I mean, what this all means is that trying to, the approach of trying to deal with our shortcomings, of trying to keep secret our shame, it's so toxic to an authentic relationship with God and to the very relationships that we're trying to protect and preserve. And let's take a quick look at the three uh, specific lies that John describes here because he gives an alternative to each one of them. And so first he says, well, we can walk in darkness and still have fellowship with God, right? That's the lie in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we do what? Are we telling the truth or are we lying? It's a lie, right? And And so... If we are walking in darkness but claiming to have fellowship with God, then the kind of fellowship that we're claiming to have, it's counterfeit. 
It's not the real thing. And I hope for, for some of us that there's some hope in that. Because it means your relationship with God can be richer than it is right now. It really can be. You know, if you're hanging on to that piece of darkness that Karen was talking about and wondering why your relationship with God isn't more satisfying, it's, you know what, there's hope. There really is. Because if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then what happens? It's interesting. He says we have two things. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Somehow this idea of walking in the light is not identical to making sure that you perfectly avoid sin in every way if you're going to have any relationship with God. Or why would we need the blood of Jesus to purify us from all sin? There's something here about authenticity, marking our relationships and our interactions with each other. And so part of it is this idea of having fellowship with one another. It's not just a consequence of doing things right. It's part of the habit of what walking in the light looks like. It's not the reward we get when everything's perfect. Then people will like us. Then we can have relationship with other people. And we get the payoff now of having relationships. It's actually that the habit of walking in authentic relationships with one another, it's part of what walking in the light involves. And thereby, uh, we experience the fellowship we're talking about. Um, and with that is how the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And so the fellowship that's happening here with one another, it's a fellowship of people who are being purified by Jesus's blood, not a fellowship of people who are pretending to be perfect. Do you see the difference, guys? It's a major cultural shift in our expectations for are people going to accept me or reject me if they find out what I'm really like? And, and that certainly plays out in marriage. Because in marriage, it's kind of hard to hide. And if there's any place where keeping secrets gets toxic, it's in marriage. And in the early years of Karen's and my marriage, well, it'll be 28 years of marriage for us in a few weeks. And, and 25 years ago, there were some ways where we were a mess. And we were a Jesus-loving mess that were busily hurting one another. Uh, in our relationship. Uh, we were in the, the later years of, Karen was in med school, I was working on my PhD, and Karen was, am I allowed to tell what you were doing from my perspective, or should you tell it yourself? Well, sure, but maybe I should start. Why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> be good. Then I'll know which, how the ice is for my steps. <laughs> so, so I was in med school, and and then residency, but, um, and almost coping. Okay. <laughs> but not quite. Um, yeah, kind of like you're kind of like your functional alcoholic. I could make it to work and I could do my thing there and then I would fall apart afterwards. And, uh, so because it was rough. And so one of my coping mechanisms at the time, rough in, rough in what ways? What, you know, when you talk about the pressure and the roughness, um, highlight what do you mean? Because anybody else been to med school? Mm. Okay, let's uh, just okay. the well for me in particular. You know, I, academically, I felt like the stuff was interesting, but the, there was so much of it, you know. And you had to be perfect, and there was this pressure of 
I mean, I felt I had to be perfect. And there was this pressure of, you know, the professor could ask you this question at any moment and you had to answer it right or you'd be ridiculed in front of everybody. And, and there's always more to learn and you never have enough. You never know enough. I oh, still don't know enough. Okay. And, uh, and so I just wanted to not be me for a while. And the, and you, you really were under a lot of emotional pressure too there because there's a question of, on the intellectual side, you have to know everything, but these are actual sick people. Some of whom are dying and there wasn't any emotional space. It wasn't an emotionally healthy environment either. And in those years, you really hadn't learned how to cope with how that all felt. So I think it all contributed together to how you wanted to be, get away from that. Sure. Sure. So, um, anyhow, so what I did was I would go to, I couldn't afford to actually read as many books as I would need to get away from my own head at that point. So I went to the bookstore and just read whatever was there. And for the moment that I was reading, I was somewhere else and I could successfully ignore the difficulty of my current feelings and, and, and my total exhaustion and inability to actually rest. Yeah, and in the scheme of things, it's a fairly, uh, let's say there's a lot more unhealthy ways that folks, even some of her classmates and colleagues would respond to that. And, and so you'd think, as a husband, I ought to be fairly happy that my wife's approach to escaping and trying to get away from the pressure wasn't turning to alcohol, wasn't self-medicating in other ways, but, you know, she'd just disappear into the library and, and not come out. Um, but I was so, wound up, been twisted about all it. It's like, she said she was coming home and she's not here yet. And in my own internal makeup, I was freaking out. Uh, I felt betrayed, lied to. I'm panicking. Some of it is the neighborhood we were living in. But I had all these fears just taking over in my own head and heart. And by the time she would resurface and come home, I would so unload on Karen such a wheelbarrow full of anger and blame and accusation that it's like, why would you even want to come home to that? Um, and, and so it was this amplifying cycle of, of her trying to get away from too much pressure and me piling more and more on because in my own mess, um, I wasn't looking to the Lord. I was, you know, and I was throwing accusations that are like, how can I even trust you about anything? If you don't even come home when you say that you're going to come home. Uh, and, and those words are uh, just so indicative that I am, I'm not trusting the Lord. I'm trying to make it all up to you. Also being perfect now in the relationship and everything we were doing. And we so needed the Lord in it because in our efforts, there was, there were bits of darkness that each of us was hanging on to. And that ended up dominating how we were having fellowship with one another and with the Lord. My own self-righteousness was boxing God out of the relationship and equation. Whereas I really didn't want to talk about how I wasn't coping and how I was just escaping. That was not something that I was particularly proud of. And, and so for us, and this is... The part of our perspective of the whole passage here. Oh, first of all, um, God's not like I was. 
I, because where there's parts in our own life that we're ashamed of and we realize, oh, you know, in Karen's case, I've just wasted time that I should have been studying. There's going to be a price to pay for that in terms of getting my work done. My husband's upset with me, so on. But then having to go face an angry husband who's going to just tell her everything she's done wrong. Some of us, we feel like God's like that. I just want to tell you he's not. Jesus isn't like that. He died for our sins. He meets us with forgiveness and with grace instead. But in our situation, we each needed to come to Jesus with it. I needed to lay down my self-righteousness, my fears, and start trusting God. I had a good friend that I would call to pray with me. Uh, I'd get on, cell phones were a new thing back then, and he had one. And so I could call his, and he was at work, and he'd pray with me. And that was a good thing as far as it went. But what also really helped me was having friends close enough who would who called me out. Who said, look, you know, you're saying all these righteous things, but you are not loving and helping your wife in this. And I had to, I had to admit, I am trying to put all the weight on her, and I'm not trusting Jesus for safety. I had to admit and recognize she doesn't actually belong to me. She belongs to the Lord. And I've got to trust him with that. So I'm dealing, I had to deal with my own stuff before the Lord and have the blood of Jesus here actually come in and bring a cleansing that started to change how we were relating to each other. And on my side, I really, you know, I had to trust the Lord for what I, I was trying to handle it all myself and it wasn't working. And I needed to stop pretending that I could handle it. Yeah. I, w- I was stuck in the lie of verse 8, where it says, if we claim to be without sin, what do we do? We deceive ourselves. I, I was just so rationalizing in my own mind, this is her problem. And if she gets this fixed, then we'll be fine. When it says the truth is is not in us. And verse 9 was kind of where I needed to move to to start moving into freedom, which was if we confess our sins. And that seems, and not just in the situation we were in 25 years ago, but for so many of us, when we find ourselves in sin here and now today, our knee-jerk reactions are denial, self-justification, excuses. It's not that we recognize and embrace, yes, I'm wrong. I have to change. I need Jesus right here, right now. But that's actually the foundation of our fellowship with God. It's so ironic. Miguel was was sharing with us last week. It's these last couple of verses. Sorry, it's this double thing, right? Because as first we start by deceiving ourselves. Ooh, I want to say something about that in a minute. And, and then we just we just move on to accusing God and saying, God, you're the one who's lying about this. If you keep telling me I'm sinning, no, God, you're wrong about this. And the, the, the alternative to um, to the first deception. Right, the false, the lie. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, the alternative is walk in the light. Walk in the light as He's in the light. If you're going to have fellowship with God, it's got to start with who He really is. God is light. Walk in the light if you want to walk with God. And the second lie here is, sorry, did I roll over you again? It's okay. No, you don't have to say again. I was just going to say it's hard to have a relationship with somebody if you're trying to. If you're, you have to have a relationship with who they really are not how you wish they were. And if you, you know, the Lord is light. And if you wish that he would just let you um, 
be in darkness a little bit, but still be with him, that just isn't going to work because that's not who he is. Very true. And the second lie is, if we claim to be without sin, we do what? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And John's alternative to that is confess. It's confession. It says, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to purify us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing comes from confession, not from denial. And I find it I find it deeply unsettling that John shows me my capacity for self-deception. Because um, I, I think, I'm probably not alone. I think we tend to think of ourselves as the people we can trust the most about ourselves. And John's challenging that. He, he's saying, actually, we're quite capable of deceiving ourselves. And, and one of the the roots that produces the fruit of self-deception is this denial of sin. And that when we, when we say, no, I'm fine. I don't have a problem with that. I can quit anytime I want. Uh, is that we're in self-deception. And that's one of the reasons that fellowship, authentic koinonia of walking closely enough with other people that they can call us out on it is a pretty important protection. It's like the helmet that I wear if I'm riding a motorcycle or a bicycle, which is a lighter weight, more ventilated, more comfortable version of it, right? Uh, our relationships can really protect. It's like a brain bucket to have people in our lives that are close enough to call us out when when we're actually lying to ourselves about things. You know, and we've talked about this, that, you know, the difference between having plenty of people in your life that you can talk to about things. But who do you have in your life that can call you out when you're fooling yourself about something? Does that make sense? Um, and and this issue of confession becoming like one of our life skills, something we actually get good at doing as a reflex instead of it being this long, drawn-out process of exposure, and now it's on the videotape, right, Miguel? It's on the videotape. There's nothing I can do about it. Okay, you got me. Um, I'm guilty. It's the path to freedom. It's the path to fellowship. It's basic for fellowship with God. And, and Miguel showed us last week that if anyone does sin, it's the alternative to the third lie. The third lie is, I'm not lying, God's lying. We make God out to be a liar if we say we haven't sinned. And his alternative to that, John says the alternative to that is the gospel. He says if anyone does sin, we have someone who speaks to the Father on our behalf. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not just for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our, our payment. He is our advocate. He's the one who speaks on our behalf. And and the ironic thing about our advocate, the lawyer that heaven has given us, he doesn't plead our innocence. He confesses our guilt. In, and Jesus agrees with the Father. Our advocate from heaven, Jesus, the righteous one, he agrees with the Father. Jesus walks in the light in agreement with the Father in every one of these areas. In place of the lie that says, 
you know, yeah, we can have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness. Jesus agrees with the He says, no, that's a lie. The truth's not in, in you if you're walking in that lie. Instead, we've got to walk in the light. And Jesus agrees with the Father when it comes to us claiming that we're without sin. Jesus declares in heaven, yes, you do. Yes, you do. I see, I know. And he agrees with the Father. Yes, there's sin. What he does instead, he doesn't deny the sin. He pleads his own blood. He says, I've paid the price. My sacrifice is enough. And Jesus brings us into a whole new category of doing relationship with the Father and with one another, where instead of hiding and concealing and trying to to manage all of our relationships so that you only see the parts of me that I think you're going to accept, but I'm going to try to hide and keep away from you the parts that I'm afraid you would reject. Jesus speaks a better word. He comes at it from having acknowledged in the first place that our foundation can only be his grace, not our performance. So that go any? Oh, (laughs) yeah. Well, you know, and... And we better get good at confession because that is, that is part of how he's designed for us to receive his grace. You know, we have to, um, we, we plead guilty and then, and then he pays the price for us. He takes our sentence. We get the sentence and he pays for it. And another thing about when he pays for it, yeah. then then he, the story belongs to him, not to us anymore, really. The story of our sin, because it's not really the story of our sin anymore. It's the story of his grace. It's the story of his redemption. It's the story of his generosity in paying for our sin. And so it's it's not any longer a bad thing to be known as the person that he cast out seven demons because that must have been a bad person, but, you know, I mean, everybody thought so at the time. You get a demon by, by being bad, maybe even by being a witch. And so if you cast seven demons out of you, you must have been really bad. But that's how Mary Magdalene is, is spoken of throughout the Gospels, because it's, it's not the story of how bad she was. It's the story of the love and the power of God in her life. It's good. It's really good. We're going to come to the Lord's table together this morning. There's a beautiful invitation from Jesus to come for thirsty and drink, to come and to buy bread and and drink without money, without cost, because he's paid for it himself. And and for us, these aren't just the stories of 25 years ago. Um, At times, it's painfully fresh, our need for the grace of God in our own home. Uh, Just a week ago, I exploded in a self-righteous rant at my whole household um, where uh, I just unloaded. I was upset about the level of mess and housework and feeling like nobody here is doing as much work as I want them to do for me. And and I unloaded on the whole family. I, I said to Elizabeth, your mom and I are having a fight and it's your fault. Um, uh, I, I got up this big head of steam to, uh, to say how I'm doing all of this and you guys are only concerned about yourselves. And, and halfway, like, 
I was going to say halfway through, you could tell I didn't feel like I was done. Um, I still had a lot of steam in the boiler. Um, I realized this is so wrong, what I'm doing right now to my family. And, and by the grace of God, I just stopped and started confessing. And I said, this is so wrong, guys. I am, I am in the wrong here right now. In my attitude, in the way I'm talking to you, everything about this. And I need the Lord. I need the forgiveness. And and even when we're not perfect, the grace of God can be the moments that mark our lives and our households. And we had a moment of grace as a family in the midst of my mess. And, and we continue to be so desperately reliant on the grace of God for things. And when we come to the table, it's the Lord's table together to take the bread and the cup. It's not because we've had a flawless week. It's not because uh, when we walk up front and get the cup or when it passes by and we take it, we're not advertising to somebody next to us how spiritual or how good we are. We're proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes again. We're proclaiming the sufficiency of the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus, not only for our own sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Because if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. One whose blood purifies us from all unrighteousness. One who's made a way for us, not because we've managed to keep that bit of darkness hidden from him so that he accepts us, but who sees us and who knows us and who, while we're still sinners, died for us to bring us into fellowship with the Father. And that, brothers and sisters, is how and why we are one body together. Not because there is anything presentable or acceptable that we bring to the table to impress each other or to make sure each other likes us, but because God loved us enough to die for us. And that's the family that he's made us. That's the place that Mercy Hill is. We come together at the foot of the cross to share bread and wine, juice, in this case, together in celebration of the wonderful saving grace of God that now a new creation has come from heaven. And that the thing that we pray about every day and every week, Lord, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Is real and rich because of the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come on our knees. Lord, we come humbly to agree with what you have to say about us. Lord, we agree. We can't have fellowship with you if we're loving, clinging to, hanging on to, and walking in darkness. We just can't. Lord, we don't want to live in that kind of lie where we do some things that we think are going to be better than being with you and then turn around and claim that we're really with you. Lord, would you purify our hearts with the precious blood of Jesus so that our walk is authentically in the light. Lord, where your blood purifies us, where it's your voice speaking a better word over us, to the Father, to all of the host of heaven, to the accuser from the pit, and even to our own hearts, that we belong to you. Lord, we humbly come. Lord, not to keep deceiving ourselves into saying that it's not sin and we're doing okay, but to find out how firm your grace really is when we throw all the weight and burden of ourselves, our fears, our struggles, our sins, and our shortcomings onto your everlasting arms. Jesus, thank you so much for 
everlasting, unfailing grace for bringing us to where life really does begin in your cross, in your death and resurrection. Amen. These guys are going to pass some bread and juice. And as these come up and down the aisles here, we really have a moment of grace. We do. There's nothing particularly special about the bread, though. It's kind of nice that the Stoners make it for us each week. Thank you, guys. Um, It's just Welch's grape juice. It hasn't even had a chance to ferment. It's so fresh. Um, Or at least pasteurized and and bottled up. Uh, But what never fails is the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all sin. And this new covenant that Jesus died for, it's available for us today. And brothers and sisters, this calls us to a radical recalibration of how we see ourselves and how we function in relationship with God and one another. This is our gospel, that his broken body makes us whole, that his shed blood. Jesus said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Let God own your story. He's paid the price. He's bought the rights for it. He'll transform it into a story of his grace. Not your failings, not your badness. (laughs) He's not really interested in a story of your goodness, but of his glory. Take some time. Let's pray. And when everybody's received these, let's pause and let's share the bread and the cup together.